Latter-day Peace Studies is produced by peace-loving members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any views expressed herein are not to be taken as official positions of the Church or its authorities. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. I'm Shiloh Logan. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading of Come Follow Me, as outlined by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We're recording these podcasts from our homes, and so you'll often hear children playing, dogs barking, and babies crying. This is our life, and we love it. Our hope is that as we discuss these scriptures and truths, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. Ben, there is so much to talk about this time around. I don't know how we're going to keep it to 60 minutes, but we haven't been doing a very good job at keeping it at 60 minutes anyway, so why should we stop this time? It seems like we're coming in at about like hour 15 minutes or something generally, except for the one with the Antonifalihais. I think we went longer on that one for good reason. Um, I think we'll be okay with this. I think so. I think we'll get through this. But man, so much stuff. We got Alma talking to Corianton and man, what a what a fascinating three chapters was. He's unfolding all of this doctrine to his son. Every It's kind of like his last hurrah with his son. It's his last dot, his last moment that he gets to spend with his son. And as I've been reading this, I've thought to myself, like, what, what would I tell my sons if that was, if I knew that was going to be the last time, or if I had a premonition, if something was there that I knew this was going to be one of the last times that I talked with them. And we get that sense because he, he tells his, you know, Helaman and Shiblon farewell. What would I be telling my son? And so with that in mind, as I'm reading over these chapters this time, I'm, I'm trying to pull out how Alma sees himself and how Alma sees God and what is his motivation? What is his faith? You know, we've talked about Fowler before and at the stages of faith and the development of faith and about how he defines faith because I think it's just so beautiful as when you ask someone, what is your faith? It's an incredibly intimate question because you are asking the most intimate, like what is your core reason for motivation? What is that thing upon which you place all of your motivation and you know the altar that you put all of your ness, as it were, on? And what I'm, that's what I'm looking for with Alma here. And what I see is just a yearning, almost like his own father when he prayed for him, when he was going through out with the sons of Mosiah and, and he was doing his thing against the church. I almost see that same thing with Alma this time. He uses a lot of descriptive words, pleading with his sons to keep the commandments, to follow the Lord, and to be better than what the natural man wants to be. And he sees Shiblon here kind of in a moment of weakness where, you know, we focus mostly on the sexual sin. And, And Ben, I know you have some stuff to say about that. And, but we focus mostly on the sexual sin. You know, we think of Coriant and we're like, oh yeah, he was out doing something with the harlot. But I, but I too, I think there's something more to it. And uh, I'm excited to hear you talk about it. But when he starts talking about he's, he's forsaken the ministry with the Zoramites, whatever his sin was and whatever he was doing had given the wrong example to the Zoramites and they wouldn't listen to Alma. And then at that point, Alma begins to open up to him basically everything about the resurrection and about the resurrection of the dead and the first resurrection and what the state in between death and the resurrection is like. And then he talks a little bit about spiritual death. And then that leads us 
into another discussion where we talk about the justice of God. And you can tell Corianton is is dealing with this question about how the justice of God works with, with the sinner. And is it really just? And then in, in chapter 42, we conclude and have this this ama- I was able to pull out um, a few ways that the, the Alma was structuring his argument, and his argument, you know, his, his fatherly advice. I see things in terms of arguments and things like that. <laughs> it's the I'm not- lawyer in you. <laughs> uh, my missed calling in life that I'm so glad I never went into. But the, uh, you know, I see Alma in chapter 42. Uh, we'll bring it out because uh, we see a lot of these little words like, uh, and thus we see, which. Book of Mormon lingo for I'm going to give you a lot of premises and here's my point. And so we see a lot of Alma's rationality coming out in here. So almost more in any other moment, I'm seeing a lot of Alma's just intimate side, uh, a really a really beautiful glimpse into this prophet who had a lot of life experience. Man, he was he was crazy. It's just he'd gone from his youth and he he was a part of. I'm I'm sure. I'd like to think that he was a part of the waters of Mormon. He, at least as a youth, had perceived this. You know, his father was in the court of Noah, and he grew up with those stories, so he knows that intimately. And then he goes into, he's been in the political, he's been a missionary, he's endured all sorts of persecutions, talking to his own people and converting his own people and seeing the social inequality and how the gospel can help fix that. And he has seen the the worst human depravity that we can possibly imagine with the scourges of women and children in Ammonihah. And then we see him coming into the Zoramites and always doubling down on his testimony of God as a way to be able to solve the social inequalities, the social ills. And even from what we know from the sons of Mosiah, now he has a testimony about how the te- about how testimony and preaching the word of God can even cure your political enemies. And how a reliance on that is just a truly magnificent um, way to be. And so finally we have him now here with his sons in a very personal, intimate moment. And wow, that's pretty, it's just incredible. So we start off here with his his uh, kind of a rebuff. He's talking to Corianton about his rebuff and about the possibility of him going out with Isabel. You know, one of the few women that are actually mentioned by name in the Book of Mormon. But now we have Isabel the harlot and in his relationship. But Ben, what, what thoughts have you had about that? What's it? Yeah. You have a little bit of a different take on this. And as I've been reading through it, I'm like, you know what? When you first gave it to me, I was like, Hmm, I don't know about that. But as I've been reading over it a little bit more, <laughs> I'm like, huh, I think there might be some merit to this. Well, um, yeah. I mean, uh, before we get to that, I was actually thinking about your use of the word intimate here. Um, these chapters do feel that way. Alma's, uh, Alma's, discussions with his sons um he really especially in these chapters with corianton i feel like he's really giving corianton some of these pearls right some of these bits of of revelation he's received on things that were important to him and that he thinks are are really neat doctrines right (laughs) hey this is something that i personally have have really sought to understand and the Lord has revealed to me and it has given me great comfort and knowledge and bless me with feeling the love of God because I understand how he works in these matters. And so this pearl I'm going to share with you, Corianton, and it's 
it's this moment just of mercy that he's sharing this knowledge at all. And so it is kind of beautiful. You know, it, it exhibits his his love and, and yearning for Corianton to repent. So, uh, you know, on this topic of how how it is so often framed, this chapter 39, um, you know, the very first phrase in the chapter heading is sexual sin is an abomination. And, you know, I that's fine. You know, I don't have any problems with saying sexual sin is an abomination. I think that's not really what Alma's talking about here. Even though there's nothing wrong with the statement, sexual sin is abomination, I don't think putting it in the chapter heading really gets at what Alma is talking about. And what I mean by that is that Alma, the context of this isn't Corianton's sexual sin. The context of all of this is Corianton's forsaking the ministry. And the sexual sin is sort of the that distraction, right? What took him away. Even though it's not really necessarily obvious that Corianton, you know, committed any overt sexual act here. Uh, you know, it says he went after the lust of his eyes. But again, there's, there's not necessarily uh, much more to indicate that he went farther than looking, right? <laughs> and, and here's the reasons why I think this is the case, that, that Alma's real main point here isn't about Corianton's sexual sin, although he does say that is a problem. His, Alma's real main point, I believe, again, is about Corianton's forsaking the ministry. Here in verse 3, he says, This is not all, my son, thou didst that which was grievous unto me, for thou didst forsake the ministry. And then he he adds to that. So, But that's the main thing, right? The thing that was grievous unto him was that he forsook the ministry. And he says, And did go over into the land of Siren, among the borders of the Lamanites, after the harlot Isabel. Um, at the end of verse 4, Thou shouldst have tended to the ministry wherewith thou wast entrusted. So the context that we always, or, or is, is so often, I think, in the manuals and often discussed here in verse 5, is it says, These things are an abomination in the sight of the Lord, yea, most abominable, above all sins, save it be the shedding of innocent blood or denying of the Holy Ghost. Again, the thing that has so often been inferred from this is that Alma is specifically talking about sexual sin as being just under murder in terms of this hierarchy of sin thing. And I think you have some things to say about that. I, I'm i not disputing that. I'm just saying that I don't think Alma, I don't think Alma's main beef here, so to speak, <laughs> with Corianton is this lusting after Isabel. I think Alma's main beef here, he says, that he has against him is that he forsook the ministry. And in this, you know, he, he left their group of people that were teaching among the Zoramites. We call them the dream team, right? Or the uh, Book of Mormon uh, missionary Avengers or whatever. Um, <clears throat> Corianton leaves this. And when the Zoramites see his his actions, you know, that he's he's left and he's going after Isabel, then this makes them less inclined to listen to Alma because of the hypocrisy, the apparent hypocrisy of Corianton. And again, I think this goes back and strikes at what is so alarming to Alma about this, because that was Alma's sin, right? Alma's rebellion was that he went out and he led people away from the church. And it says, you know, there were 
abominations that he committed. And, and Alma says that he murdered people and then kind of comes back on that a little bit. Well, you know, I, I destroyed their souls by leading them away from the church. But Alma talks about it in very serious terms, his own transgressions in terms of what he did in rebellion. And so I think that is most likely where Alma is focusing his attention and concern with Corianton in how he treated his calling, his responsibility to preach the gospel. I love all of that. That's that's some really great stuff. You know, you said about the the hierarchy of sin. This, you know, the most abominable of all sins, save it be the shedding of innocent blood or the dying of the Holy Ghost. You know, for the longest time, I've had this this question, and it's it's, it's really unsettling. What I you know, it's called the hierarchy of sin, and it's trying to like put sin into a taxonomy of like good, better, and best. And so, <laughs> I think it's. I've learned to very much just not very much care for the hierarchy of sin. And so when I read these verses, I'm like, man, what is Alma trying to get at? And and so I'm evaluating my own my own weight and my own discipleship and where I'm at right now. And I love the quote from C.S. Lewis because when he's in his book, The Screwtape Letters, you have Screwtape who's writing to his, you know, for anybody who doesn't know, but uh, Screwtape is the, the devil, you know, one of the greatest devils there there is. And then there is his nephew, uh, Wormwood, and he's writing to Wormwood, and Wormwood's having some problems because Wormwood's kind of an apprentice devil, and he's having some problems because he's trying to get his his person that he's been attached to, you know, this human being that the devil, this this Wormwood's trying to to tempt. Wormwood's been trying to get this guy to commit murder for a while and to do some really really big serious sins because you know if he can get the person to really get hung up on the serious sins, man, you've really got him in this kind of hierarchy of sin. And the advice that Screwtape gives his his nephew is, he says, it does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. You know, it's it's that we spend so much time like making the big sins, the really big, big ones. And we never really come into accountability that the little sins, as it were, and, and here we are talking big sins, little sins. Everything that leads us away from God is a big sin. And I think a lot of the times we talk about it in terms of these big sins, little sins, at least in the church mythos and ethos, is that you know these are sins that include somebody else you know that you know they affect somebody else especially life how life comes into this world and how life goes out of it that's a standard narrative but i think in a lot of ways you know like with the beatitudes we've talked about how the beatitudes are set up as a hierarchy but with the first and the last beatitude having the same blessing the rhetoric the rhetoric there the greek rhetoric is to attach the first and the last beatitude together to show that it's not a hierarchy, but it's one eternal round. It, it makes the first last and the last first, to where you're in this, you're always in this symbiotic circle where you're just moving through the Beatitudes all of the time. There's no time when you've conquered it. You, you, you just, you're going through it. In a lot of ways, I see that in this way, that's actually what's going on. I think, you know, talking about the sin of the Holy Ghost, and Ben, you and I talked just a little bit about this before, so I guess this is a good time to, to, to talk about it here is that this sitting against the Holy Ghost, 
what is that? Like, like what in the world is this sinning against the Holy Ghost? Because Alma comes along and he says, Know you not, my son, that these things are of an abomination in the sight of the Lord, yea, most abominable of all sins, save it be the shedding of innocent blood or the denying of the Holy Ghost. And I'm like, what does, what does that even mean? Why and bring so, it up? Yeah, why even bring this up? <laughs> yeah. And so in this way, I've, I've gone back a lot with the history of the church and, and what the Holy Ghost has meant throughout history. And it, it kind of clicked for me when I was reading the lectures on faith. Now, the lectures on faith were written basically during the time of the School of the Prophets. It was originally attributed to Joseph Smith, but you know, historians and church historians, we pretty much now conclude and have it on good ground that Sidney Reagan was most likely the author of it. The lectures on faith, there's seven lectures. They were written as a type of catechism. So if anybody is familiar with, with the Catholic tradition, the catechism is a rhetorical way of writing where you ask a question and then you respond by scriptures to basically validate principles and points of doctrine. And among those points of doctrine in the lectures on faith is the nature of God. And it's it was really surprising to me when I first learned about it to realize that you know things that we take for granted today, such as the first vision and priesthood authority and these types of absolute narratives that distinguish us from other churches that are so fundamentally different. Like these are our go-to fundamentals about what makes us us weren't actually present in the original church. In fact, Sidney Rigdon, for instance, didn't even know about this whole priesthood authority thing or that Joseph and Oliver had even seen John the Baptist and had seen Peter, James, and John until like all, until Oliver Cowdery around 1835-1836 basically let it slip that that had happened and it was the first time that even Sidney Rigdon had heard about it. And if anybody was going to know about it, he was going to know about it. It just wasn't a narrative that was around much. So this whole, we're the priesthood authority, we have the authority of God narrative that we have today just wasn't present at that stage of the game. And so they were building up the church and they were building up uh, these truths and they were coming to these new revelations. And one of those that it was also the case was the nature of God himself. Now in the lectures on faith used to be included with the Doctrine and Covenants. And when they were included with the Doctrine and Covenants, they were included until 1921 where they were then removed. In fact, the lectures on faith were the doctrine portion of the doctrine and covenants. And so now with them removed, we kind of just have and covenants. <laughs> but there's, you know, there, there's some good doctrines there still. But what was fascinating is there was no definitive reason that I've ever been able to find about why the lectures on faith were removed. And maybe there are, I just haven't seen them. And, but it's been whispered that one of the reasons they were removed were because of confusions that were arising out of specifically lecture five. And in Lecture 5, each paragraph is, is labeled point 0.1, point 0.2, point 0.3. So it's Lecture 5.2. So it's the second paragraph of the lecture. And in this lecture is where they are trying to go through and define the nature of the Godhead. And so I'm just going to read a little bit of that and, and, and then get back into what Alma is talking about the sins of the Holy Ghost. But he says, There are two personages who constitute the great matchless governing and supreme power of all, over all things by whom all things were created and made that were created and made, whether visible or invisible, whether in heaven, on earth, or in earth, under the earth, in and throughout the immensity of space. They are the Father and the Son. The Father being a personage of spirit, glory, power, and possessing all perfections and fullness. The Son, who was in the bosom of the Father, a personage of tabernacle, 
made or fashioned like unto a man, or being in the form and likeness of a man, or rather, man was formed after his likeness and image. Also, he is also in the express image and likeness of the personage of the Father. You know, so if you're catching on right now, this is very Trinitarian. It sounds very Trinitarian, right? Where God the Father is a spirit. Jesus is God incarnate, or he, he's the aspect of God that has become and made, made man, and made into man and into a tabernacle of clay. But this, uh, this part here, the express image and likeness of the personage of the Father. So we, we don't know if they're still referring to the Father as a personage of tabernacle, so much as they're still referring to Jesus as that personage. But they goes on to say that the Son is called the Son because of the flesh, and he descended into suffering below that which man can suffer, or in other words, suffered greater afflictions and was exposed to more powerful contradictions than any man can be. But notwithstanding all this, he kept the law of God and remained without sin, showing thereby that it is within the power of man to keep the law and remain also without sin. And then this is where it gets to talk about the Holy Ghost. And he, being the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, and having overcome, received a fullness of the glory of God, possessing the same mind with the Father, which mind is the Holy Spirit that bears record of the Father and Son. I'm going to read that again, because that's just, that's just really good stuff. And he, being the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, and having overcome, received a fullness of the glory of the Father, possessing the same mind with the Father, which mind is the Holy Spirit. So this is, this is really kind of, yeah, this, is, this is pretty overt Trinitarian ways of thinking. And this is from the Lectures on Five, you know, written around 1835, or Lectures on Faith, written around 1835. So we see that the revelations and the, the unfolding of the gospel narrative took some time, but I think what's fascinating is applying this understanding to the beginning, to this sin against the Holy Ghost. Because in this way of understanding, the Holy Ghost is that spirit, it's that reciprocal relationship, the unity of mind between the Father and Son. And for us to come into that spirit, for us to deny the Holy Ghost, is for us to come into the spiritual unity with the Father and Son to where we are brought into the at-one-ment with God, kind of like the atonement, but the at-one-ment with God, where there is nothing that can be known that is not known, and we have been brought into that presence where we not only rationally, but experientially and existentially know God in that manner. And then after coming into that moment of having a pure knowledge of all things, having been brought into the full and all-encompassing embrace of God, to where we have and can witness of all things, then we reject it and turn away from it. Because at that point, see, repentance as per the Bible dictionary, is the process, the, the epistemic process of seeing God in a new light. It's leaving behind all of the old views, all of the old sectarian ways of thinking about things, and allowing God to reveal himself anew. But then once we have the full immersion of understanding who and what God is, to where there is nothing that is known that can't be known, that we have now, as much as humanly possible in this life, know God, then we reject him? At what point, what's, what's left after that point? At, what, at that point, where do we have to go for knowledge? In that we have repented so much until we have a perfect knowledge of all things, and then we turn away from that knowledge. There's no more need for repentance. The repentance is complete. And then we return away from it. So I think at that point, when I'm reading this and I'm seeing 
why can't the Holy Ghost be forgiven? Why can't or the, the sin against the Holy Ghost be forgiven? And so that's when this quote from Joseph Smith makes a lot of sense. When he said, all sins shall be forgiven, except the sin against the Holy Ghost, for Jesus will save all except the sons of perdition. What, what must a man do to commit the unpardonable sin? He must receive the Holy Ghost, have the heavens opened unto him, and know God, and then sin against him. After a man has sinned against the Holy Ghost, there is no repentance for him. He has got to say that the sun does not shine while he sees it. He has got to deny Jesus Christ, and when the heavens have been opened unto him, and to deny the plan of salvation with his eyes open to the truth of it. So this is really just like, almost like an epistemic foundation. It's that you have given all truth. And then once you have come to a place where you can no longer repent because it has become fully revealed into you, and then you turn away from it. It's just the laws of the universe. There, there's no way that you can possibly ever come back from that because what foundation or footing of truth can you ever step onto something greater because you were given the greatest and you turned away from it? So in that way, I see this, the taxonomy and the hierarchy of sin here begins to take on far more of a descriptive nature for me than a prescriptive one. And so it's not like God setting, this is the highest thing that you can't sin, and this is the second highest thing that you can't sin. It's just the natural evolution of our relationship with God and what comes out organically, and then what we choose to do with that at the end. Yes, that's exactly how I was seeing it as you were describing that. You know, that this denying of the Holy Ghost, the reason that it can't be repented of is because the act itself, or, you know, if it can be called an act, is the rejection of the idea of repentance itself. It's completely rejecting the idea of repentance. And so if if the whole problem with sin is that it prevents us from repenting, right? There's this, that's basically the, the, the antithesis to sin is repent. Um, if the whole problem with sin is that it prevents us from repenting, then if there's a hierarchy of sin, it's which sins are most effective at preventing us from repenting, right? And that may be different for every person, but I see Alma here saying, obviously, sinning against the Holy Ghost, you can't repent of that because the very concept is rejection of repentance, and he goes on to murder and he says, why is it so e Why is it so difficult? It's not easy to obtain forgiveness of murder. Well, this is something that if someone does, it's, it's, not, um, it's not something that they can personally repair in any way, shape or form, right? They've ended the life of a person. And while that person may forgive them, may be ready to forgive them, the Lord may be ready to forgive them. I think it is um, very difficult that they will forgive themselves. And I think Alma in this verse is speaking from personal experience, uh, not that he necessarily has personally murdered people, but that's how he's felt, right? He expressed it earlier when he was rebellious that he had murdered many people. And why does he say it's not easy? Well, look at all that he went through in 36. Um all that he went through before he really was able to change his mind and and repent, right? And so I see this as him 
basically explaining to Corianton, hey, you know, there are some things, some sins that are more difficult to repent of. And so obtaining a forgiveness isn't a matter of God being less willing to forgive you of this or that sin. It's the propensity of that sin to blind you or prevent you from either forgiving yourself or from seeing God in a merciful way. So, you know, the, the, again, this hierarchy of sin, you know, if we want to put sexual sin right under murder, that's fine. That may be true in, in many cases. For this case, I think fitting right there between murder and, and sexual sin on Alma's hierarchy of sin is forsaking the ministry. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, also he goes over here into verse 9, and he says, Now, my son, I would that you should repent and forsake your sins, and go no more after the lusts of your eyes, but cross yourself in all these things, for except you do this, you can in no wise inherit the kingdom of God. I'll remember and take it upon you, and cross yourself in these things. Now, you brought up, Ben, that uh, before we were started this, that, you know, here's the here's the word, the cross. Here's the cross that comes up, this this cross like at uh, at Calvary. And I was like, well, is that the uh is that the actual cross like we're talking about in Calvary or is this more of a different kind of verbiage to be able to kind of like protect yourself? But there's a cross reference here that you pulled up. Yeah, so uh, you know, if we go to to the footnote of the second cross, you know, the C footnote, it takes us to 35:1230, which is Christ telling them, you know, that they take up their cross and follow him. And, and you know, even if this were uh, like a verb in terms of protect against, that's still the illusion. The illusion of this word is always to the cross of Christ. Um, you know, if you cross yourself, um, like like uh, we see so often that uh, the Catholic practice of crossing yourself, right? That's a spiritual protection, right? <laughs> and right. so that's... That's what that is. That's what the the illusion is to the cross of Christ, that you, instead of allowing yourself to be taken by these these lusts, as he says, that you instead um, sacrifice that and take upon you the name of Christ and deny yourself of those things and follow him. I like here that he says, if except ye do this, ye can in no wise inherit the kingdom of God. Oh, remember and take it upon you. You know, I see this take it upon you in two different ways. He could be taking upon him the cross, taking upon him the name of Christ, or the it referring to the kingdom of God, right? Take the kingdom of God upon you and cross yourself in these things. You know, you have a responsibility to the ministry that you've been called to. Uh, we see at the end of chapter 42, to tie this all up and and bring the point home that I was making about Alma's admonitions to Corianton is that he says, Ye are called of God to preach the word unto this people. And now, my son, go thy way, declare the word with truth and soberness, that thou mayest bring souls into repentance, that the great plan of mercy may have claim upon them. That's verse 31 of chapter 42, and I know I'm skipping ahead on that, but to me that ties it back. Everything here is that Alma is calling him back to the ministry. And I don't know what their their waiting periods were back then. You know, maybe Corianton had to wait six months or a year before he could go back to his mission. 
I doubt it. <laughs> no, and it, <laughs> but maybe. <laughs> and 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 that's my point that I'm making here is that I don't I don't know you know whether Corey Anton committed a, a sin that would would warrant such a thing. But in any case, Alma's position was that Corey Anton was still called to the work and he could immediately return to it if uh, if he was ready. I like that a lot. And with this bringing up the topic of the cross, you know, so the cross has really become a taboo subject in our religious culture. And there's there's been a lot of reasons given for why we don't bring in the imagery of the cross. And there's some popular, you know, popular statements that we have. One of the most popular is, is like, you know, I wouldn't wear a cross around my neck. You know, if, if your brother was shot by a gun, would you wear a symbol of the gun around your neck? Yeah. <laughs> They're just not, you know, then we have the whole, we want to look at the the life of Christ, not the the death of Christ. And those kinds of, those kinds of, that kind of rhetoric just doesn't land for me because I'm, I always laugh because we talk about not wanting to have the morbidity of the cross as the implementation of Christ's death, but we're still okay with the sacrament, which yeah. is symbolically a dead body under a burial shroud upon which we symbolically cannibalize blood and flesh right and when we put it into those terms it's like uh i'm not comfortable with that but that's that's the symbolism of what we're doing and yet we have found beauty in that and we have found because there is beauty there it is it's amazing the amount of power that's in the sacrament and the symbolisms there because that's what we've made it symbols really are as useful as they are until they're not but there is a lot of beautiful imagery in the cross that a lot of the times we we relegate and dismiss, I think, too quickly in our faith tradition. And either there's a fantastic book for anybody who's interested. It's called Banishing the Cross, the Emergency of a Mormon Taboo. It's written by Michael Reed. It's a great little book. It shows how the how we have kind of banished the cross as a symbol in our faith has really emerged really in the last 60 to 70 years, and mostly as a cultural rejection of Catholicism, that the church wanted to distance itself symbolically from the Catholic Church. And so in some ways, some people have argued that maybe a little we went a little bit too far culturally and threw kind of the baby out with the bathwater there. But in at any rate, what I still love is that the cross does come up in the Book of Mormon as a symbol. But one of my favorite verses here is in Jacob chapter 1, verse 8, where it says, Wherefore we would to God that we would persuade all men not to rebel against God, to, to provoke him to anger, but that all men would believe in Christ and view his death and suffer his cross and bear the shame of the world. It's one of my favorite scriptures in the Book of Mormon about how we are called to suffer the cross of Christ. And this is one of the most beautiful imageries for me in all of, of Christianity and all of Christian theology is this idea of suffering the cross for the same reason Christ did, that what Christ suffered and atoned for in infinite and eternal ways, we are called to do it in temporal and finite ways. And so when I see Alma's admonition here to Corianton to cross himself to of self-sacrifice, because whatever his sin was, whether or not it was the lust of the flesh or forsaking the ministry, both of those were inherently and, cons- and absolutely selfish. They were self-centered, self-looking, self-fulfilling. And regardless of what it was, that's what he was looking at. And so this call to cross yourself is this call to what Jacob 1.8 says, to ascend the cross of Christ and to suffer for each other the way that Christ has for us. And for the same reasons, 
He's calling him literally to the work of Christ, to to leave out all of these things of what the world has to offer, and to go out and to be involved in the community and in the and in the world to call everyone to that which is Christ. And in fact, he down in fourteen there in thirty nine fourteen he even reiterates you know the the Sermon on the Mount. There it is all over again. Seek not after riches nor the vain things of this world, for behold, you cannot carry them with you. And so there it is, Ben. It's it's that whole Christology and that whole cruciform hermeneutic that's coming out again in the text is trying to teach us to be able to see the world through the the sacrifice of Christ. And and still here, it's using that imagery of the cross to do that. The cross is not the imagery of the death of Christ so much as it is the love of God to self-sacrifice for all of his children and our call to do the same. The, the symbolism of the cross really can be quite profound. And um, I think that culturally, uh, we uh, really might have missed out on a lot. Um, and there's, there's a lot that we could get from it um, in our own scripture. You know, the question may be, well, where did the Nephites get this idea of the cross? Because, you know, even Alma is speaking pre-Christ. Well, there's a few considerations here. First of all, um, Nephi quotes the prophet Nahum, which apparently we only know from the brass plates, doesn't exist in our current um, Bible. But the prophet Nahum um, apparently prophesied that Christ would be crucified on a cross, would be lifted up. And so Nephi quotes that prophet as saying that. Nephi himself saw Christ be lifted up on the cross and crucified. Um, Jacob apparently did as well. You know, Nephi says that Jacob saw uh, Christ as well in vision. So all of these prophets, speaking in the Book of Mormon, actually had these visions and prophesied of Christ being crucified, and they talk about the cross. So it's it's certainly um, part of the Nephite um, symbolism already. It's already ingrained in their scripture and, and symbolism at this time. Um, Christ, when he comes... Both among, both during his mortal ministry among the Jews, uses the symbolism before he's actually crucified to mean what is going to happen. And it's not clear whether the disciples really understood fully what he was talking about, but they definitely did after the fact. Um, and then he uses the symbolism again when he comes to the Nephites after being resurrected. So the resurrected Christ uses the cross as a symbol in the Book of Mormon. So <laughs> if, right. uh, if we're rejecting the cross based on the fact that we only want to talk about, you know, living Christ and, you know, we want to distinguish ourselves culturally, well, the Book of Mormon, Christ, resurrected Christ, uh, uses that as a symbol. So I think uh, it's legit. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. I, I, think, I think there's a lot that we can use and I think in I know in future podcasts we're going to bring this up a, a little bit more because there's a few places in the Book of Mormon where I see this principle coming forward and I know we'll bring it up. In chapter 41, I'm I'm really fascinated because chapter 41 is all about or I'm sorry, chapter 40 is all about resurrection. So now Alma shifts gears from what he was talking with Coriantin or trying trying to reprove Coriantin. And now he's talking to him about doctrines that it looks like Corianton may have been uneasy about. I, I'm guessing that maybe as he was talking to the Zoramites, these kinds of principles hadn't really landed for him yet. And so 
the way I'm looking at this is Alma is has re- rebuffed him about forsaking the ministry, why he forsook the ministry. Maybe it had to deal with Isabel. Maybe it had more to do with the fact that he just wasn't fully converted. There was there were things that he was talking about that hadn't completely landed for him yet. And I think there's some some evidence here in in chapter in chapters 41 and 42 that really bring up this parental love for his son to be able to resolve these and help his son find a new level of conversion. And in verse 41, what I think is in chapter 40, I'm getting my chapters all messed up. (laughs) In chapter 40, when it talks about, he's talking about that state of the in-between, between death and resurrection. And he says in verse 13, And then shall it come to pass that the spirits of the wicked, yea, those who are evil, for behold, they have no part in the portion in the spirit of the Lord. For behold, they chose evil works rather than good. Therefore the spirit of the devil did enter into them and take possession of their house, and these shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth, and this because of their own iniquity, being led captive at the will of the devil. Well, in Mormon thought, we look at outer darkness as the place for the sons of perdition. But the that's not it doesn't seem to be that that's what Alma's talking about here. I think he's equivocating on outer darkness versus our version of outer darkness here. This seems to be more of a place of spirit prison, that place where the souls rest in spirit prison or in paradise. Because he says in the just the verse before this, he's talking about paradise. That's that space of rest where the righteous are received into happiness and peace. And then he talks about this outer darkness. So I think the outer darkness here in verse 13 is talking more about spirit prison. And as we talked about before, Ben, where I'm coming, I just, I find far more consistency with finding that hell is is the place is reserved for those who think they belong there. And for those who truly believe that they belong there, where they belong as rejects, as they belong in their sin, as they belong as the outcasts, as they belong as, as they've been othered, kind of where they feel like they've been othered from those in the kingdom, that they have no foundation and, and ability to be able to appeal to God, right? Because we had talked about in in previously where, I think it was, was it chapter 38? I'm going to turn to chapter 38. Yeah, it was chapter 38. We talked about this when Alma was in his own hell and Alma was suffering his own torment and his, his own pains. He says, and it came to pass that I was there three days and three nights in their most bitter pain and anguish of soul. So literally the hell that's being talked about here in outer darkness. And he says, and never until I did cry unto the Lord Jesus Christ for mercy did I receive a remission of my sins. Now he'd been given this knowledge from his father. So he had this kind of knowledge in the back of his mind. He'd been given it. But what if you don't have knowledge that you're suffering, you're going through this suffering of realizing you think you belong here, but you have never been taught this. There's never a, and never until moment for you. And that's where I find great beauty in how once Christ was resurrected and that was opened up. You know, we talk about the missionary, you know, that that post-mortal missionary work of going into those spirits and simply helping them repent, letting the scales fall from their eyes in a post-mortal world where they begin to realize, maybe I don't belong here. <laughs> maybe. Maybe this isn't where I'm supposed to be. And as they receive that and they are brought to a knowledge of who and what they truly are and have always been, then at that point, the repentance process is able to take over and then they enter into this conversation as well. But just like you've said, Ben, I really appreciate that 
the state of wickedness is really a perception where we damn ourselves, where we, we really damn the power of God to really take over in our lives. And then once we turn to God, we realize that we've always been accepting or we've always been accepted by God. There has never, ever been a time that he has not loved us and that we have not been right there in his presence, but we have turned ourselves from him and he's simply looking for us to turn back and to see that we've always been there in, in the arms of his love. You know, there's some really great ways to contextualize these verses like you've been talking about. Um, I mean, just like you were saying, verses 13 and 14, uh, they're more speaking of a state of mind or a state of perception um, than they are something that they're um, forcibly, you know, by some external forces is imposed upon them. Um, and there's lots of evidence for this. Um, and so I was thinking through a lot of things as you were talking about that, um, starting with the concept that Alma seems to be, I mean, he admits later that he doesn't fully understand all of this, right? He says, there's there's a part of this I understand, but the mystery is not fully made known unto me, so I'm not going to explain it all. And so I think that there's plenty of uh, cause here to say that when Alma's talking about this outer darkness and state of the wicked, you know, he's talking about it as far as he understands. And it's totally fair for us to say, Alma um, isn't isn't completely precise and fully accurate in his description of what's going on here because we do have greater light and knowledge that's been given to us, especially like Doctrine and Covenants section 76, that doesn't make this incorrect, but definitely makes it incomplete. Alma's understanding of this is incomplete, and so we can see that. And there, there's, there's so much more context to this here. Um, again, you know, we talk about this as if this state of being um, in uh, the spirit paradise or spirit prison, as if these people have to endure this for um, some given period of time, right? And this is their punishment. But, you know, we've just been given by Alma the context for this passage of time, so to speak, right? Verse 8, he says, Now whether there is more than one time appointed for man to rise, it mattereth not. For all do not die at once, and this mattereth not. He says, all is as one day with God, and time only is measured unto men. And then he says, um, it has been made known unto me by an angel, in verse 11, that the spirits of all men, as soon as they are departed from this mortal body, yea, the spirits of all men, whether they be good or evil, are taken home to that God who gave them life. To me, this means that this concept of this this temporary state in in terms of our understanding of how there's a passage of time and there's suffering for a given period of time and people that have to endure that suffering for a thousand years you know must have been so much worse than the people that have to endure it for like 10 years right that that is not a consideration here at all and that's not what's that's not what's being talked about. This isn't degrees of suffering based on, you know, when you were born. Oh, well, you were born 4,000 years before Christ, so you have to suffer 4,000 years before Christ was resurrected. And Alma says that's not, that's not actually 
the concept here because time is measured unto man. But when we're taken home to that God who gave us life, it's not a matter of time. And the great context of these verses, 13 and 14, is what you said, that that verse in chapter 38 and then in chapter 36. Because Alma says he goes through all of these things for three days before he finally remembers that he can call upon the name of Christ for mercy. And everything instantly changes for him. And so I don't see this again as this state of punishment, but rather it's a state of mind um, of those who simply have not received or chosen to accept the mercy of Christ. Um, and so I, I like that context of, of this chapter in terms of understanding this um, this probation or not probationary period. What does he call it? Um, this temporary between death and the resurrection. Um, I also really like the symbolism, how, how, how Alma's experience of chapter 36 really informs the doctrine here because we, we, Alma gives his poetic experience in chapter 36. This is how I really experienced all of this. And then in chapter 40, he's like spelling out the doctrine, right? And how do we meld these two together? Well, it's really fascinating because what happens as soon as Alma turns to Christ and receives mercy? What happens? Well, his limbs receive strength and his tongue is loose so that he can speak. It's a symbolic resurrection. Like he has died and he's being resurrected. And what do we have here at the end of verse 14? He says, um, And they remain in this state as well as the righteous in paradise until the time of their resurrection. Right, So here Alma remained in that state, so to speak, until the time of his resurrection. And I just, I like that symbolism of how the experience of Alma sort of meshes with him teaching this doctrine to Corianton. Yeah, I think exactly what you're talking about is, is literally, is explicitly talked about just in the next verse where it says, now there are some that have understood this state of happiness or this state of misery of the soul before the resurrection was a first resurrection. Yea, I admit it may be termed a resurrection, the raising of the spirit of the body of the soul and the consignment to happiness or to misery, according to the words which have been spoken. So yeah, I think that's speaking exactly what you're talking to there, because then there's that type of resurrection, but then there's also the actual combining of the spirit and the, and the, and the body that he's talking about as the, as the actual physical uh, resurrection that we experience. But when we get over to chapter 21, where it says, he says, And now, my son, I have somewhat to say concerning the restoration which has been spoken. For behold, some have rested the scriptures and have gone far astray because of this thing. And I perceive that thy mind has been worried also concerning this thing. Behold, I will explain it unto thee. And so this is one of those evidences that Corianton, when he was out being a missionary, one of the things that he was dealing with was just, he wasn't prepared and he wasn't fully converted. and Alma is beginning to see that. It's like he came out and he's like, this sin was grievous, whether or not forsaking the ministry or the the the, the immorality. But now he's coming in to like fill in the gaps. He's like, ah, you know what? It seems to be that Alma's recognizing there was a reason why that happened. And as a father, he's coming through to help patch the patch holes that maybe he he missed in helping his son understand this before taking him out. Because we know that Corianton is still young. And he's still he's still not fully developed 
in his own testimony. I say unto thee, my son, here in verse 2, that the plan of restoration is requisite with the justice of God, for it is requisite that all things must be restored to their proper order. Now, what I like about a restoration is, you know, you have this, when artists go through and restore things, there is a certain sense that it's a process. It's not a one-time event. It's not like something that, boom, it happens and, and, and you're there. But there is like an awakening part of this restoration process where those who are restoring either paintings or art, you know, sculpture, things that are that need to be restored, cars, for instance, there is a certain amount of awakening what was into what it, into the current now. It's taking what was and bringing it into the now. And I, I was, you know, I've questioned some of these verses when, uh, and it's 41 verse 3, and I'm interested to get your concept here, Ben. It, because it's just, the, the more you kind of go into these narratives, into the particulars, sometimes you can get yourself so caught up into the particulars that you lose sight of the general. And if you go too general, then you end up, making really big narratives that don't fit the particulars. So there seems to be like this relationship <laughs> we have to have with going into our the particulars of the gospel and coming back out to the principles. And there's a relationship there that I'll talk about. But he, but he says in Alma 41, verse 3, And it is requisite with the justice of God that men should be judged according to their works. And if their works were good in this life and the desires of their hearts were good, that they should also at the last day be restored unto that which is good. But if their works were evil, they should be restored to that which is evil. Now, you tell me what you think about this, Ben, because this has been something I've been thinking about a lot about today as far as how are we summed up in the annals of, in the annals of history? And are we taken just the, who were we when we died? You know, those last moments of our lives, you know, we hear about deathbed repentance. Are we those people who repent and, and it's like taking up the last three years of our life? Kind of like Social Security, right? They take the last few years of your working career and then they determine the rest of your what your allotment about what you're supposed to get based on your last years of working. Is it like that? Is it that, you know, we that, is there a grand scale of justice where like everybody's good deeds and everybody's bad deeds are like metaphorically put into this big blender and they blend up all your deeds and then they puree it out and they take a smear of it and they hold it up to the light and they see what hue it is and they have a spectrum of telestial and terrestrial and celestial and they see you know the combination of all of your good and bad and see what hue you work on and that's where they assign you is is that how it is what exactly is this good is it just a do they is there an angel with a tally mark that keeps all of your good and all of your bad and then if you repent then it wipes out your bad and just keeps your good how do you see this so like a like a cosmic social score Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like ranking, like, like communist China doing a social credit yeah. score. Right. <laughs> Is <laughs> like, God yeah. like the communist? Is that what's going yeah, on? Yeah. Your your plan of salvation credit score. Um, <laughs> so I see chapter forty one as Alma's discussion of justice, and he's saying, you know, justice um, is an important concept to understand. So let me lay it out for you. And let me tell you that you can get a lot of good just from justice, right? Like you could have somebody that's a good person and and good things will happen to them, you know, because in verse 15, he's kind of tying up this concept of justice, what, what some might even term karma, right? He says, for that which ye do send out shall return unto you again and be restored. 
Therefore the word restoration more fully condemneth the sinner and justify him, justifieth him not at all. Again, I see this whole chapter 41 as his discussion of justice. And then I see 42 as him saying, okay, you got the concept of justice. Now let me tell you about how mercy really fits into all this and how you don't really want justice, Corianton. What you really want is mercy. And as you understand mercy, then you'll come to see that the justice of God is both perfectly merciful and perfectly just. And so I get, again, in that context, you know, there's almost no discussion or there's very little discussion about the mercy of God in chapter 41. That's really saved for chapter 42. Um, I see here where he talks about um, in verse five, um, here he says, the one raised to happiness according to his desires of happiness or good according to his desires of good and the other to evil according to his desires of evil. You know, and this is interesting too, because um, what are our true desires? Um, do we, do our actions really fully, exactly, perfectly reflect what our true desires are in our hearts? And I think that's a hard question. Um, because on the one hand, we say, well, absolutely they do, because otherwise you wouldn't do it unless you truly desired that. And on the other hand, we can say, yeah, but, you know, we are mortal and we lack foresight and we just do stupid things sometimes that aren't really what we want. And we know they're not really what we want. And so I that's kind of what that's kind of the thing that I take. I kind of take the second road, even though I totally understand or I think I totally understand the first <laughs> concept of that or the first uh, idea. Um, it's that we can have true, profound desires in our heart that we we somehow um, don't aren't always able to actually bring into being through our actions, um, and and that we're you know maybe we're constantly working for that to happen. But um, I see here that this is evidence of the mercy of God, right? That that truly the atonement of Christ is condescends to our desires and is merciful to us. He says here in verse seven, he says, they are their own judges, whether to do good or to do evil. And then in verse eight, now the decrees of God are unalterable. Therefore, the way is prepared that whosoever will may walk therein and be saved. So this is, again, this is a discussion of justice and agency. Um, you can choose which way you want to go. The Lord has prepared the way, um, and you'll be able to receive according to your desires. What do you really desire? And I feel like in verse or in chapter forty-two, he really kind of drives the point home. Corianton, what you really want is mercy, and you need to be less concerned with justice. I love the distinction there between mercy and justice. That is absolutely fantastic. In that. You know, and we talked about it before I brought up the quote before from Elder Holland, who said, please don't ask if it's fair, if we should ask the victim to be the one who forgives. Because we, and then now I'm paraphrasing, but he says, whenever we come to it, we know that 
mercy is always what we're going to want and what we're always going to desire for ourselves. So please don't seek for justice. Please seek for mercy. And this is where I love Les Mis as a book. It was the the most influential book of my teenage life. In fact, The Bishop was my was my is still today my favorite literary uh, hero, as it were, my fictional literary hero. Um, through that whole story, we learned that truly to understand justice, you have to see it through the lens of mercy. To see justice on its own merit and its own accord is just you'll never get it. And, and so I, you really do have to use mercy as your foundation and then from there to see the justice of God. Because the justice of God is really just who and what he is. It's, it's the manifestation of just the reality that he lives in and that he, he acts accordingly to. And so he's also merciful. And so God is mercy. So that is his justice. And so we begin to see that mercy and justice are not competing forces they're more one and the same thing than I think we can ever and have ever really realized before. But here in verse 10, very famous scripture, do not suppose because it has been spoken concerning restoration that ye can be restored from sin to happiness. Behold, I say unto you, wickedness never was happiness. Well, maybe a little bit. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> I mean, sin is sin because it's fun, right? You know, if, if nobody ever... If nobody ever found pleasure in sin, nobody would ever do it. And that's the reason why people sin is because they find pleasure and joy in it, right? You know, this. No, this there's whole... addiction too, which sometimes isn't pleasurable or joyful. It's just an addiction. Right. Well, addiction starts to read because you're trying. I, this is where I got a. I found a lot of mercy is when I really committed this and internalized this. You know, Aristotle. He. I, I love Aristotle as a philosopher. I don't always agree with him, but I love. Just the path and the questions he was asking to get him what where it got him. And Aristotle, see, in philosophy, there's the you know the four five main categories of philosophy of metaphysics, epistemology, ethics, politics, and aesthetics. And the main question with philosophy is how, how do you know reality, or it's what is reality rather, and that's metaphysics. And how you know that reality is is epistemology. But in deciding what is reality, Aristotle comes along and he thinks he can pretty much just ask four questions that are called the four great causes. And these four questions can basically put all of reality into a nice little box, you know, and so he can like categorize all of reality, you know, as human beings on one side and rocks on the other and trees and air and birds and clouds, all of reality can fit into this nice little box by asking these four questions. Well, whether or not he was good and accurate in doing that is a different discussion. But what I find is interesting is that his fourth question is, what is an object's reason for existence? Why does this thing even exist? And when he comes to defining man, like what is man? What is human? What is humanity? What is a human being? He says, well, the telos, or that it, that is the telos is uh, the thing for which a thing was created. He says man's humanity is that they seek to find eudaimonia. And eudaimonia is basically a Greek word. It's a complicated word, but it, it's been translated as happiness and joy. A type of fulfillment, a type of human flourishing and fulfillment and joy. You know, Aristotle was philosophizing in Greece what, um, what Lehi was already saying 150 years before, where he says that Adam fell that men might be and men are that they might have joy, that men are 
that men exist, that the reason for man's purpose in life is to find joy. And you know, when I really internalized that, Ben, I really recognized that the, the motivation that all men have, even if you disagree with me, even if you vehemently disagree with me, you have opinions that I vehemently disagree with you in, I have to accept at a very basic level that even in the strongest differences of opinion, we fundamentally as human beings are simply doing what we truly believe is going to lead us to the greatest amount of happiness. And I happen to believe there's one way of doing that to find the greatest amount of happiness. And I see that someone else is doing the same. They may disagree with me and I may disagree with them. But happiness, the, the discovery of happiness and the journey for happiness and the pursuit of happiness is really that thing which makes us human beings and differentiates us from all other things. So when I look at this and I say that wickedness never was happiness, it's that because we are human beings, there is a purpose of what we are supposed to be. And I personally find that that is answered. What, for what end were we created? You know, Christ, I believe Christ answers that in 3 Nephi 27, 27, when he says, Verily I say unto you, what, what manner of men ought you to be? Verily I say unto you, even as I am. That the Christ, that, or that concept, the word Christ, is the most perfectly typifying archetype and word for the, expre the true expression and the true emanation of our humanity. The true organic evolution of what it means to be human beings is Christ. And he teaches that in the Sermon on the Mount. So when we act different than that, anything that leads us from actually be becoming what is our true fulfillment of being a human being on this earth, that Christ made himself flesh be to show us the way. And this goes back to that quote that I had from the Lectures on Faith, that because Jesus Christ was sinless, he therefore showed us that it was within the power of man to keep the law and remain also without sin that the incarnation of Christ and of God that way showed us that the way to go. So wickedness never was happiness, not simply because God is going to punish you if you sin, but because when we act outside of our humanity, because of the nature of just who we are as human beings, there will never be true and eternal happiness there. You know, that's... Exactly what verse 11 says, which is so interesting. You know, he says, all men that are in a state of nature, or I would say in a carnal state, are in the gall of bitterness and in the bonds of iniquity. They are without God in the world, and they have gone contrary to the nature of God. Therefore, they are in a state contrary to the nature of happiness. Well, you know what? Maybe he should have just said it that way first. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I didn't need to spend five minutes talking about it. He, he summed it up in one verse. Okay. No, no, no. <laughs> Bringing in Aristotle is always great. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, whatever. So, uh, so again, uh, like I was uh, talking about, you know, after, after he kind of has this discussion of, of justice here, um, and, and talking about our natures, you know, and, and what it is that, that really brings us happiness. You know, he says, if we were really consigned to our nature, it, we would just be miserable, right? Because our, our nature without God, our nature is to just be in sin, to not have the opportunity for mercy. 
And so then he gets into this discussion in, in chapter 42. Now, Corianton has, has this very interesting question that really drives at the heart of this narrative and, and discussion that we've had in several podcasts now. Um, and it starts in, in verse one of chapter 42. He says, I perceive there is somewhat more which doth worry your mind, which you cannot understand, which is concerning the justice of God in the punishment of the sinner, for you do try to suppose that it is injustice that the sinner should be consigned to a state of misery. Okay, so we have Corianton here, whose view of God at this point is such that if a person is consigned to misery, that that is punishment and that is unjust of God to do that. And Alma is going to explain this in a very interesting way to him that I think for us may not land as well as it did for Corianton in some ways, because we probably are, our narratives aren't quite as, aren't quite as ensconced in the creation and Adam and Eve myth as much, I think, as maybe these ancient peoples were. And so his discussion here of this, the story of Adam and Eve and and being cast out, I think can feel a little, um, at least to me, feels a little foreign to this concept. It's kind of like, well, how does this really helping really give any, any flesh this out at all? But the main point he's making here about this and using the story to symbolize it is brought up in verse four and then a later verse. He says, and thus we see, here's your thus we see, (laughs) that there was a time granted unto man to repent, yea, a probationary time, a time to repent and serve God. In other words, you think that this state of misery, so to speak, is punishment. But Alma's saying the Lord's, God's not seeking to punish anyone. What he's seeking to do is give us an opportunity to repent, right? Give us the chance to experience something. This life is an experience in and of itself to experience something that will give us a greater, more profound, and more complete view of who he is and his plan. And we cannot experience that without this life. There's something about this life that gives us that experience that we couldn't have in any other way. And so we had to have it this way. And so this is the probationary state, a time to prepare, right? A time for us to really start um, completing or improving or um, I don't I, I can't think of the word right now, but but basically repenting so that we're changing our perceptions of who God is so that we can better understand him, his nature, and his plan, and how and our relation to him. And that fits into the broader narrative of the plan of salvation. You know, why is it that we came to this earth? Well, ultimately, we came here to have an experience, right? And um, that experience is one that is supposed to help us understand who God is in a better way than we did before we came here. Wow. I think we should just end with that. I like that a lot. <laughs> There's so much more. 
there is. All right. Well, all right. Going forward. So what I noticed when I was reading through it this time is that Alma in chapter 42 has four main segments, and we can determine and find these segments by the phrase, thus we see, or just thus. And there's four times that he uses this. So there are four main points that Alma is trying to bring out. And then he uses a lot of rationale and a lot of reasons to get to his point. And he's like, and thus we see. And so these are broken up from chapters two through four is the first segment. Five through seven is the second. Eight through, I'm looking at my scriptures, uh, 14 is number three. And then 15 through 20, so 20, um, where is it thus? Oh, 26. So 15 through 26. And so in these verses, what we're seeing, basically, we can, the four points that Alma's trying to bring out, let's just go to the thus we see scriptures. So number one, thus we see that there was a time granted unto men to repent, yea, a probationary time, a time to repent and to serve God. So that's his first point. That's his first bullet point. The second bullet point, and now we see by this that our first parents were cut off both temporally and spiritually from the presence of the Lord, and thus we see they became subjects to follow after their own will. So well, now we can talk part- about that, subjects to follow after their own <laughs> will for a long time. Hey, we, can, we can have an, our whole hour just to that scripture alone. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so then we have chapter two, or so then the third, the third one this comes along and he says, um, and thus we see that all mankind were fallen, and they were in the grasp of justice, yea, the justice of God, which consigned them forever to be cut off from his presence. Okay, And so finally, the fourth point, and thus God bringeth about his great and eternal purposes, which were prepared from the foundation of the world, and thus cometh the salvation and the redemption of men, and also their destruction and misery. So here again, we see, just like what you were talking about, Ben, Alma is unfolding this human experience. He's, what I love about this, and it's one of the most intimate, I think 42 is one of the most intimate vignettes that we get of Alma's personal character. Because for me, what's happened in my own life, I've recognized is that when I have certain spiritual experiences and I experience God in a certain way, I hold those moments sacrosanct. And then I begin to try to open those moments up more fully to be able to kind of explore those moments. And so I try to repeat them in my memory and, and, and just having moments of silence and meditation to think about those moments, to try to open them up and to see how they came and where they went and to see what was really present there. And in that, I start to extrapolate uh, principles of the gospel that came from those spiritual experiences. And what I love about this is I saw that Alma was doing the exact same thing. That mm-hmm. we through several of these chapters we see that Alma, especially his conversion story, became his this the most powerful, probably the most powerful experience in his entire life. And then he used that experience to extrapolate all of these gospel truths that he's learned in his life. And he's like, "Don't think that I learned all of these things that I've extrapolated of myself. It all comes back to this singular moment. So let me tell you from the singular moment, and then how this unfolds into the rest of it." And that's what I see a lot from what he's talking about here to Corianton, is that it's Alma's, re- I mean, this is like Alma's reasoning 101. He's going through, there's a lot of beholds and therefores, and then he concludes with, and thus we see. So this is not just, God told it to me, so I'm going to give it to you. 
this is, I think 42 is very much, this is Alma talking. This is Alma's own end of life testimony that his own truth that he's come about from like his own Urim and Thummim, as it were, coming out, he's using his own truth that he's come to and he's given these axioms and then concluding with these principles. And I think it's absolutely beautiful to see Alma doing this with his son. Um, because it's it's not just God told me this, so I'm going to impart it to you. It's a moment when he's like giving the most intimate parts of his knowledge to his son and being completely honest about it. Uh, you know, in these, these chapters, he's like, this is just my opinion. Take it as my opinion. I don't know. And just like you said, Ben, it's not that Alma is wrong, but just incomplete to what we have been given now 2,000 years later. And so it's just there's been more given to us with greater light and knowledge to kind of fill the gaps. But for what Alma knew at this time, man, he's just, he's, su he's such a powerful, powerful person. And what I love about the fact that Alma is kind of bringing about his own reasoning into the mix here is because it, human, it, it humanizes them so much more to, be, to make them so much more relatable. Because I think in a lot of the times when we read scripture stories, these scriptural heroes of ours become so other, other humanly, as it were, that they, be, they become so much, there's a disconnect between who I am and who they are. Because we see them as such spiritual giants that I don't have these moments, I don't have these experiences, I don't have this. And so we set up false expectations as to what their life was like and about how they were received revelation and about how they received truth. Because we're looking for these really big, magnificent moments of existential wonder and awe, when in a lot of ways, I think Alma's searching into the mystery had to do with a lot with his own reasoning. There were moment, there were special moments of absolute revelation and experience with God, and then Alma unfolds this out, uh, and we see a lot of evidence for that. But yeah, forty-two for me is one of my favorite chapters, if not my favorite chapter about Alma. Yeah, I. Uh... As you were talking about that, I, I definitely see that here, you know, going back to what we were talking about at the beginning. These are kind of Alma's pearls, right? These are the, the pearls that he's polished and fashioned over his experience. And he's he's now, you know, imparting them, so to speak, into Corey Anton. You know, uh, there is, there's this sort of, um, we have uh, here Alma's experience versus his doctrine or his preaching right? His experience versus his preaching. And his experience, like, is sort of what, uh, what he's seen and, and felt and, and, and knows in a spiritual way. And then the doctrine is like his thesis, right? I mean, if he were doing research, you know, the experiences is the experiments and stuff that he does. And then the, the actual doctrine is, well, what, what are all of my theories about why I experienced that the way that I did? What is, what does my experience say about the structure of the universe? <laughs> and so Alma's extrapolating all of these sort of doctrinal principles and theses out of, uh, this experience that he had, which is totally, uh, the way that we do it, right? We have an experience and then we try to generalize that to the rest of our life. So that we can apply it and and move forward. And here Alma isn't isn't just doing isn't just taking his experience 
and and applying it to his own general life, but he's also trying to impart that to his son Corianton and saying, you know, uh, you are under my stewardship and I have this wisdom that I've gained from my experience and I want to give it to you in sort of a generic way so that then you can then try to internalize that. And as you go out in the world and experience these things and are preaching, you can see how it fits with what you experience. So I, I do. I really love how Alma has done this and, and we should look about, look at how we do it. Um, and, and remember that these sorts of things start first with the experience, right? That's what Alma had first. And that's what we seek first is to have that communion with the Holy Ghost, that spiritual type of experience. And then all of a sudden, sort of these doctrines and principles have life. They're no longer just words, but they actually have a deeper meaning and root within us because of the experience that we've had. Um, I love Alma's discussion in the last verses of this chapter. Um, they're one of the greatest discussions of the principle of agency. Um, he says in verse 27, Therefore, O my son, whosoever will may come and partake of the waters of life freely. And whosoever will not come, the same is not compelled to come. Um, he says, uh, oh, I, uh, verse 25. I wanted to talk about verse 25. He says, what do you suppose that mercy can rob justice? I say unto you, nay, not one whit. If so, God would cease to be God. I I used to view this as the the cosmic justice, right, that we've discussed before, this impersonal, faceless, um, like an anthropomorphic. just law. Well, not even anthropomorphic, like the opposite of anthropomorphic, right? Like this law of justice that's in the fabric of the universe um, uh, that that has to be um, satisfied, but not because, you know, it's dispassionate, right? But I, I, I see it um, more in this sense, I see it more as anthropomorphized, that it, that it really is um, in terms of this is our ideas of justice and punishment, um, not just about others, but about ourselves, what we think we deserve, because we're often our most harsh judges. In fact, Alma talks about this earlier. We just read it. He says, they are their own judges, whether to do good or do evil. And so often we judge ourselves in a, in a more harsh way than anybody else ever would. And so I see this verse 25 do you suppose that mercy can rob justice? I say unto you, nay, not one whit. And I don't see mercy, mercy's job as robbing justice whatsoever. You know, rob involves like an involuntary uh, exchange. <laughs> um, but that's not mercy's role. Christ's role in extending mercy to us is to persuade us to willingly relinquish our demands for justice. And to, as Elder Holland says, instead extend and accept mercy. That's what we want. Um, so I really love how he uses the word rob here because, uh, again, the relationship that we want between mercy and justice is not one of uh, force or imposition, but one of voluntary relinquishment. 
uh, in terms of our, our agency. I like how what you said really helps to clarify how this chapter begins, you know, to see the beginning of the chapter by the end and then to go back when he's talking about the justice of God in the punishment of the sinner. And the only other time I see punishment here in this chapter is in verse 16. And he sets up 16 by verse 15. And now the plan of mercy should not have been brought about except an atonement should be made. Therefore, God himself atoneth for the sins of the world to bring about the plan of mercy to appease the demands of justice that God might be a perfect, just God, and a merciful God also. Now, repentance could not come unto men, except there were a punishment, which also was eternal as the life of the soul could be affixed, opposite to the plan of happiness, which was eternal also as the life of the soul. And I think a lot of times we have really bastardized this word punishment, because to look at punishment in a punitive sense, simply that you punish for the sake of punishment, I think is one of the most like in a sadistic way. Yeah, like in a sadistic way, because punishment has no, no end or no purpose other than punishment. You're punished because you're punished, and it's not it's not for the sake of rehabilitation. It's not for the sake of coming back into the fold. It's not for the sake of being excluded, but coming back in the the unity of God and the inclusiveness of God. Punishment is I'm just going to punish you because you broke a law because you've been punished. You're just going to feel pain because you didn't do what was right. And for whatever reason, it's just you're going to be punished. I'm going to set up a place of punishment because you didn't do what was right. And I think that is one of the most ungodly interpretations of this kind of scripture is to look at the punishment of God in that way. Whereas when we look at this as a matter of perception, when Alma was in the state of hell, that state of of hell and you cannot see the mercy of God the all-encompassing universal mercy of God you see no purpose to the suffering like he sees his his hell and he sees what he did and that for him is is a punishment because there's no purpose there's no end to it there's there's no reason why it could be any other way it's just hell and when there is no concept of anything else greater than or purpose other than, you are in a state of punishment. Not because that's what God is inflicting upon you, because you didn't do X, you know, you did Y when you should have done X, or X when you should have done Y. But it's because we are simply in the frame of mind of wickedness that we do not see that we are always already there in the presence of God. And Alma didn't know this until until I thought of Cod. I didn't even have the comprehension that I could not be in the presence of God. And just like you've said so many times, Ben, it's that once Alma caught a hold of the thought of God, all of a sudden, immediately he was there. Immediately this punishment, this self-inflicted punishment, immediately this was there. Now we repent because repentance means that we are born into our carnal state with a limited view, a limited epistemology, a limited concept of knowledge. And the goal is to be able to work back into seeing God and ourselves and each other as God sees it, to be able to see things as the Stoics would say, to be able to see reality on its own terms. Because generally speaking, we don't live and see reality. We live in our stories that we make about reality, and then we live into our stories. And so when we're talking here about punishment, punishment is our own story. So that the fact that how could men repent except there was punishment? Well, punishment is that 
Self-flagellation is that self-punishment that we create in ourselves that drives this concept of the Alma says, then I leaned out and I saw God, something else with God and it made manifest itself into me. And I began to see what already was. So we begin to see that punishment is not even just a motivator that God puts there to get us to repent, but it's the it's just the natural consequence of our living in a carnal state and antithetical to the way that reality works. It's 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 just we don't live, you know, just like what you said there in verse 11, that we are without God in the world and that we've gone contrary to the nature of God and that we are in a state contrary to the nature of happiness. And we perceive this as punishment, not punishment with no end, punishment with no purpose, punishment with no reason. It's just pain. And it's inflicted pain, whether it's self-inflicted or otherwise, but we tend to think it's God punishing us. And it's just not. And so I, I find a lot of value here with what you're saying here with mercy and with this concept that we become our own inflictors of pain. Now, I think there's a, I think there's a, a tendency here, Ben, I was talking with uh, my wife, Rachel, about it, in that I think a lot of ways there's a trap here in that when we consider and, and have in our mind, in our heart, that we are always already worthy, that we, that there's nothing wrong with who and what we are, that it's the perceptions and the layers and the identities that we've layered, layered over ourselves. I think there's a fatal flaw that pride will take us that, how can I say this, that unless we are truly emptying and coming into the, into the conversation of the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount, where we're constantly going through that emptying of the being poor in spirit and going through the mourning and the, and the meekness and the filling and that whole process of the Beatitudes, I think there's a temptation for us to stand in our ego and in our pride and in our unrepentant state and declare like Korahor that I, there's nothing wrong with me. I have nothing to repent because I'm already worthy of God. Right. And I think, I, think that's the, I think that's one of the most powerful cunning tools of the devil is that they take a truth such as we are there already worthy in the presence of God and it, it distorts it to get us to think that we are already worthy in the natural man in that we stay in the ego and we never let go. I think that's that's where I think Korahor really gets it wrong is because he stated a half truth or truth there that, that, that we're there in the presence of God, as it were, but then it becomes along like you have nothing to repent for. And I'm like, no, 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 no. See, that's where you got it wrong. Because the repentance is a coming to and the emptying of the ego and the emptying of ourselves to realize that we have nothing in and of ourselves. Yes, we are always in the presence of God. Yes, he always loves us. Yes, we are always there. But that doesn't mean we are not supposed to enter into the repentance process of emptying all that out. Well, and and I think that goes right along with uh, Alma chapter 5, you know, because while that statement that we we are always worthy to to be there um it's just really about our perception um that <clears throat> that is a statement of truth but the statement of truth only matters if you're experiencing it and you can say it all the time but unless you're actually experiencing it then it isn't true for you because alma says in chapter 5 verse 26 right and now behold, I say unto you, my brethren, if ye have experienced a change of heart, 
And if you have felt to sing the song of redeeming love, I would ask, can you feel so now? So you can say all the day long, oh yeah, you know, um, I'm worthy and God is there merciful and, and save anything. But only you can know in your heart if you're actually experiencing that in the moment or if you're speaking out of pride. And so I love how Alma pulls this together at the end with this verse 30, right? He says, Oh, my son, I desire that you should deny the justice of God no more. Do not endeavor to excuse yourself in the least point because of your sins by denying the justice of God. But do you let the justice of God and his mercy and his long suffering have full sway in your heart and let it bring you down to the dust in humility? Yeah, yeah, that's perfect. And then he just begins, he picks right up, and he's like, all right, my son, now you are called of God to go preach the word into this people. Man, I think that's such a powerful summary right there. I mean, that really does sum, sum everything up, doesn't it? It's just, we can't stand in our pride and think that we're just we're already there, even though we are always right there in the presence of God. He's always loving us, but we need just like that. It's, it's just such a great a great summation right there. Don't let the justice of God and his mercy and his long suffering have let the justice of God and his mercy and his long suffering have full sway in your heart to bring you down to the dust of humility. Wow. If that doesn't summarize it, I don't know what will. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, we have gone over a little bit, but I absolutely love <laughs> absolutely love this this one. This has been a really, really good one for me. Great chapters. I was really looking forward to this um because I, you know, months ago when we started sort of discussing some of these concepts, I had in the back of my mind, but what about Alma chapter 41 and 42? And as I started sort of hashing out in my mind these these ideas, I said, I just, I need to go and read it and not read it with the old me perception, but read it with the new me perception. And wow, I'll tell you what, I don't think I've understood it so well before like not that not that i perfectly understand everything alma's talking about but that it was it's opened up much more to me than than it ever had before i agree well in the next time we're now getting into the war chapters so we're gonna have to spend the okay. next two weeks talking about the war chapters oh my goodness i'm so excited <laughs> <laughs> uh, i mean and for completely different reasons than i've ever been excited before to talk about the war chapters so that's going to be that's going to be fun. There are big chunks, so we're likely just talk we're going to be talking mostly about principles and then going through and bringing out a lot of these principles in the text. So we will try to do as much context as we possibly can, but when you're covering 10 to 10 to more chapters at a time, we're not going to be able to go through each one, but uh, definitely want to be able to set the context for why these war chapters are what they are and to be able to glean because there is so much here good that we can that we can really uh pull into and man ben reading it through this time is is completely different than anything i've ever thought about before it's it's been fascinating to re- re- starting to read these through already and uh, just how different this is for me yeah i'm looking forward to it cool well until next week i'm shiloh logan and i'm ben peterson thank you for listening